Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to Ben Squared, an up-tempo Invesco podcast seeking to share insights on the major market events in just 10 minutes. I'm Ben Gutteridge, resident host and director of model portfolios, and completing the square is our resident expert guest, Ben Jones, our director of macro research. Ben, how are you? Half term, so imagine morale taking a bit of a dip. Absolutely. I'm at the moment just trying to find the, the quietest place in the house to record this, which is not the easiest thing to do with two kids running around and uh, going stir crazy on just Tuesday of half term. So we've only got another six or seven days to go and, um, and a dog barking in the background as well. So apologies, apologies if you get the background noise. So sitting under the stairs again, as uh, as usual. So uh, thanks, Ben. This week we'll be discussing uh, the oil price in the main. I know that's sort of an asset class that sort of tarnished many investor forecast reputations, but given mine is in tatters anyway, not such an issue, but certainly very brave of you, Ben, to take on this topic. Before we get to the oil price, though, I think it's important for us to make some comment on what's happening in bond markets that on the on the US 10 year. I'll, actually, I'll let Ben reveal the surprises. Uh, but before we discuss any of that, uh, I think we do want to remind uh, the listeners that this is intended for UK professional investors only, uh, shouldn't be considered as investment advice, and that any capital invested is always capital at risk. And we also ask the audience to kindly hang on after the conversation is finished to hear some other important messages. Um, as I said, Ben, before we get to talk about uh, oil price fundamentals and indeed some investment strategy thereafter, what can you tell us about what's been happening in the bond markets of late? Well, Ben, you said a second ago, um, the surprises in the bond markets. Actually, I'm not surprised and, and neither really should our listeners because we've been talking about this for the last sort of, um, couple of months, really, that I think bond yields will continue to move higher. Um, on Monday, yesterday, uh, bond yields went through um, 5%, or the US 10-year went through 5%, dipped back down a little bit um, today. Um, but I think partly this is reflecting two things, and, and I think it can continue. Partly it's reflecting Powell's comments last week, where he essentially said, he does not think the policy is too tight. Um, and then also we got two more pieces of data last week that reinforced the resilience in the US economy. And that was the retail sales number um, and the industrial production number, which was stronger and the retail sales numbers topped um, estimates. Um, so I think, look, the, these bond yields can continue to, to move higher. Um, the one thing I would um, urge investors just to think about and um, take a closer look at is this idea that there's a buyer's strike uh, among foreign investors, particularly Chinese investors, rushing from the exits. Actually, the story there is a little bit more nuanced, and we see in aggregate foreign buyers still buying U.S. Treasuries. Now, there is a lot of supply coming on stream, and perhaps this still is a bit of a supply imbalance, but to, to sit there and say there's a buyer's strike, and there's been some quite high-profile names that have said that recently, um, I think that is false. Uh, but that doesn't change my view. I still think that um, U.S. bond yields can continue to grind higher from here. Well, the surprise, I guess, Ben, was that we continue or you continue to be right, of course, uh, being flippant uh, <laughs> there. But uh, look, we in fact, listeners can go go back and listen to prior podcasts, encourage them to do so, because, you know, you were talking about sort of the fundamentals of the, of the bond market very much still uh, in play. Right now, we do pivot to oil markets. I want to talk about fundamentals of the oil markets before talking about any investments uh, thereafter. But what, Ben, you know, big opener, I'm afraid. What can you tell us about the major challenges and supports for the supply side of oil markets? Yeah, good question, Ben. Look, and um, let me first say that oil is something that I've been um, quite positive on through uh, most of, of this year. Um, and that's worked at some points and, and not worked at others. Nothing goes in a, in a straight line. But in terms of the, the supply side at the moment, 
I still see supply being um, really quite constrained. And in fact, not a lot has really changed fundamentally in the last few weeks. Obviously, we've got some, some terrible events in the Middle East, but thus far that hasn't changed um, fundamentals. Um, but supply remains really quite tight. We've known over the course of this year that OPEC has continued to sort of rein back on supply. Saudi has been sort of pushing through those reductions um, in quotas. I don't see any sign that that is going to, to turn around um, anytime um, soon. Um, and then the other one to really focus on is the US. Certainly over the last 15 years or so, the US has been the marginal driver of global um, crude oil growth. And obviously, we know that's come predominantly from the, the shale patch. Um, that took a bit of a drop um, through the, the COVID period, as we know. Um, and it started to claw its way back, but it really has clawed its way back very, very slowly. And this is because um, most of the oil producers in the US are really very, very focused on capital discipline. Historically, when oil prices have moved higher and certainly sort of threatened the $100 kind of level, um, oil companies have tend to go on a capital spending spree and, and dug oil, um, wells and gone out to, to search for, for, for new fields. That hasn't happened um, this time round. Um, and it's why we're not getting a, an increase in the rig count in the US, quite the opposite. We're seeing that um, decline recently. Um, there's been a little bit of an improvement in some of the productivity. So the wells that they are drilling are the more productive wells. Um, but ultimately, um, oil production in the US is still below um, its peak. Um, and the growth rate in that is, from what I'm reading and, and what I expect to see, is expected to slow through, through 2024. So you've got Middle East, you've got OPEC production um, relatively well capped and potentially even uh, slightly declining. You've got um, US production um, also growing at a very, very low rate. Um, so, so the supply side remains relatively tight. That's the way I think I would take away from this, Ben. Well, I mean, I mean, on, on that, uh, it all seems pretty logical, but I guess there's even more concerns about Iran being drawn yeah. into this conflict. Do you think, do you think the sort of, and, and of course that would be a really could be really quite punishing for oil supply. But, but do you think sort of Saudi Arabia at all or any sort of parts of OPEC maybe are preparing to release some more supply into the economy, into the world? They wouldn't necessarily want to see oil prices going to 150, 160, because that could really see some demand destruction, couldn't it? That's very true. Yeah. And look, um, if you look at um, Saudi, um, it's still got um, sort of about three million barrels of excess um, capacity there that it could, in theory, um, pump relatively um, quickly. Um, that's about the amount that um, Iran produces at the moment. It exports um, a little bit um, less than that. Um, but you're right. Should this um, conflict spill over into Iran directly and that production uh, be taken off stream. That would be a significant hit to um, to oil markets. Now, at the moment, um, it seems that there's um, abundance of caution is perhaps a little bit of a strong word, but there is a degree of caution in the Middle East and it hasn't spilled over too far into other uh, markets. We haven't fundamentally seen any um, impact on supply yet, but that is a key risk. And certainly if that happens, that would potentially put oil prices higher as well. Equally, if it spills over um, as well, the worry is that this um, impacts the, the Strait of Hormuz, which is a, that sort of key channel where oil supplies go. And also natural gas supplies as well. Qatar exports a lot of natural gas through the, the Strait of Hormuz. So if there is um, a conflict in that region and that very narrow um, tract of, of water is closed or restricted, that could have significant upward pressure 
both on oil prices and on, on natural gas prices. In that event, yes, I would expect to see um, other parts of the Middle East try to step in and, and increase supply where they can. But it's then the case of can they get that oil out, I think is the big question. And, and if we do see that, then we will see a much more sort of significant geopolitical sort of risk premium being put into oil. The thing to watch there then will be the spread between Brent prices and WTI prices, which again, thus far, are relatively um, contained. So I think the key point that I'm trying to make is that supply is relatively, um, is relatively constrained. It was before this conflict. Me having a positive view on oil, um, and we'll come to the other investment conclusions in a second, is not um, centered on this Middle East conflict spilling out into something more broader. Um, my view was the same uh, before these events, events happened. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. So what about, we flip to the demand side of the equation. Mm. Perhaps could be argued more visible and less vulnerable to geopolitical shocks. We, we, we should see that's, that, that's certainly there to be challenged. But on the demand side, are we not sort of seeing China disappointing? Are we not worried about economic slowdown? Isn't the demand side of the equation a bit troubling? And, and how would that support a positive view on oil? Yeah, I mean, so I think, um, again, that's the big surprise this year, hasn't it, uh, Ben, that the that China has not reopened with the same sort of vigour that uh, much of the rest of the world has. And although there's been domestic travel in China coming through, we're not seeing the overseas um, travel. That's some, one thing that has surprised me this year. Um, and what that means is that some of that airline demand um, is not there. Um, I think the question is, where's the direction of travel here um, on China? I'm not sure that I see the demand side from China going south from here, it might sort of plateau and, and stabilise. But even in, in that sort of environment, I don't think that's a, a big dent to demand. The other thing to think about is if we go into a, a recession, we look back at historical recessions, it's less so the, the consumer demand that drives the, the weakness in oil. It's more the industrial um, demand um, coming down where we see the, the demand weakness and then the weakness in, in oil prices. Um, and at the moment, as I mentioned earlier, we've seen industrial production in the US, for example, moving higher um, uh, over the course of, of recent months. So the demand sort of picture actually remains relatively strong um, at the moment, relatively stable. We've seen the IEA, we've seen OPEC, in fact, raise their, their demand forecasts for 2024. Um, recently, we've seen a bunch of the, uh, the sell side brokers that I speak to say the, the same type of thing as well. So demand conditions at the moment, certainly in terms of what we're seeing in terms of backward looking data remain pretty resilient, but also the, the forecasts remain pretty resilient as well. If we look at the IEA's forecast as well uh, and look back through history, there is a bit of a bias there, there for them to underestimate um, demand in the future as well. So that keeps me relatively, um, relatively positive. And again, I come back to the, the point before that even if we do get a recession and we get some weakness in demand, it's not like we've had the supply glut build up like we've had in, um, in previous um, in previous uh, recessions, which is then when you sort of get this sort of spike in oil prices that can cause the, the recession. And then you get the big collapse in oil prices because you then get that big sort of supply demand imbalance coming through quite um, quite quickly. Okay, so I think now where I know where my next questions, where, where your answer might be headed. But the next question, how do you think this then stacks up for the case for investing in in and around the energy segments of the stock market? Yeah, so look, the energy sector has been um, one of my favourite areas um, through much of the course of, of this year. Uh, and again, it's had periods where it's worked and, and it's not worked. But for me, this is a, a long term 
trade. Um, if we look across the sectors, let's take European sectors, uh, for example, um, European energy is trading on a little bit over um, six times forward earnings, which is really the, the lowest multiple that we've seen for, for many decades. Um, it's certainly the, the lowest multiple relative to the market um, that we've seen for, for many decades as well. So you can, first of all, put energy in that deep value bucket. And if you're in an environment also where you think that rates are going to be higher for longer, somewhere suddenly where I sit, that should be um, an environment where you do want to get more uh, value into your portfolio than perhaps you would have done over the last 15 or, or 20 years or so. So that's sort of point number one um, is, is value, first of all. Alongside that, it's deeply unloved as well. So, um, most of the positioning measures that, that I sort of look at still show that energy is, is deeply underweighted in, in many people's um, portfolios. So there's definitely room for investors to move into um, this space. Um, but really, then you've got to say, well, okay, value and positioning. You, you, ben, you could have made those arguments a year ago, two years ago, even three or four years ago, for example. This is not a new story. What is the catalyst um, for, for jumping in now? And really, it's the earnings dynamics, and the earnings dynamics are obviously intricately linked to the oil um, price. Um, so we've seen um, energy prices, sorry, we've seen energy earnings um, gradually uh, moving, um, uh, sorry, energy expectations for earnings gradually moving off their lows again this year. Um, I think that's going to continue. We're going to see that coming through in reported um, earnings. So you're going to see that earnings strength coming through. So that's for catalyst number one. But also, the other thing to think about, um, and it comes back to my earlier points about sort of capital discipline, um, a lot of these energy companies have really, really strong balance sheets at the moment. So they've got cash on the balance sheets. They've been paying down debt. They've really turned out their debt as well. If you look across all of the sectors, they're one of the sectors where the the uh, sort of maturity profile of the debt is, is longest. And that means there's no sort of refinancing uh, pressures to hit any time um, soon. Um, strength of balance sheet is definitely something we're looking for at the moment. And then you say, okay, well, what are those companies doing with that capital if they're not spending it on CapEx um, projects? Well, what they're doing is they're returning it to shareholders in the form of dividends and buybacks. Um, and again, as we've spoken about previously on this podcast, um, dividends, buybacks, near-term certain cash flows, again, is something that is much, much more attractive in this current environment of, of higher interest rates at the moment. So deep value, decent earnings um, coming through, strong balance sheets, um, and returning cash to, to shareholders. For me, that makes energy probably my favorite sector at the moment. Well, a, a compelling case there, Ben, and... <clears throat> With delivered with such authority that we'll have no choice but to revisit that in uh, in future podcasts and see how it's bearing. But uh, thank you very much, Ben. As always, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, if for listeners who want to hear more from Ben, you can uh, follow him on LinkedIn and Twitter as well, uh, or just get in touch with your Investco Relationship Manager, and I'm sure they'll be uh, happy to deal with uh, with those requests. You can also follow myself on LinkedIn as well if you're really struggling for ideas. Uh, but before you leave us, please do listen to the following investment risks and information. Uh, the value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. 
This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class, security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable, nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.